Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there. I'm Steve Arnold, talking to you live from a popular nightclub in Habitat, a fantasy world made possible by the miracle of telecommunications. Hey, and welcome to Radio Motherboard. I'm Motherboard Editor-in-Chief Jason Kebler. This week, we have a special live edition of the show to celebrate the launch of Broadband, the untold story of the women who made the internet. The book was written by friend of Motherboard and Terraform co-founder Claire Evans. The podcast is an awesome talk between Motherboard staff writer Kaylee Rogers, Claire, and two of the subjects of the book, Marisa Bowe and Stacey Horn, who give us a glimpse into the early days of online publishing and social networks. Guys, thank you so much for coming tonight to our event uh, with sort of a semi-launch for, for I'm sure you've already launched it, but it's a pre-pre-launch. Pre-pre-launch for Broadband, um, a new book about the history of the internet and how women played a, a very important role in creating the web that we now know and love. So with me, I've got Claire Evans, who is sort of motherboard extended family. Thank you. And she is the author of the book. And then we've got Marisa Bo. She's an online copywriter, and she was the EIC of Word Magazine, which was an online zine. And then we have Stacey Horn. She was, is the creator of Echo NYC and, and still runs and moderates it. So thank you all for joining. And I'm Kaylee Rogers. I'm a staff writer at Motherboard. I cover the internet and the digital divide. And so I'm super psyched to talk to these three ladies about the internet past and present. Um, to start, actually, Claire, I would love to talk to you just about why you wanted to write this book, what was sort of your inspiration and in, in finding out all these stories. Yeah, so the book is, for lack of a better word, a feminist internet history. It's really a history of the internet told through women's stories, of which there are many uh, that have not been included in other histories and in the canon as we know it. Um, I was motivated to write it. I mean, I can't... I always imagined that if I was going to write a book, it would be about the internet, just because it's been such a huge part of my identity my entire life. My father worked for Intel, and I cut my teeth as a writer online, as a young live journal blogger, <laughs> and, then, and then a blogger blogger in those golden days where we all wrote for free and freely and never worried about the comments so much. And I, you know, I think I had always identified really strongly with this idea of being a net native and being you know, seeing the internet as kind of my kingdom or my country in some way. And I don't know, a couple of years ago, I started feeling dissociated from that identity and feeling like I didn't know what the internet even was anymore and if it was for me as a woman and what my place was. So I started writing a series of articles for Motherboard, actually, um, about, you know, interesting arcana from internet history, things that uh, I found interesting and groundbreaking, such as things like cyber feminism, which is a really 
interesting and colorful movement of feminism that blossomed online in the 90s or, or female CD-ROM game designers in the 90s, things that I thought were just interesting. And the more I wrote these pieces, the more I realized, one, writing them was like a bomb. It felt really good. It felt like I was connecting to something, like my heritage as an online person. Uh, but also that there were so many stories and that even I, a person who grew up online ostensibly, a lot of these things I missed completely the first time around. And so I began to ask myself, like, what else is there in this history? Is there, is there a sort of feminist countercanon to the, all the tech history books that I love? And if so, where is it? And I, when I couldn't find it, I decided to write it. That's basically the story. Yeah. And it, it was really interesting in the book, you know, we were mentioning um, another character, character, person in the book. Uh, human. A human in the book, uh, discussing how being a woman at that time in some ways was an advantage because there were so few women that you would maybe get noticed a little more. So it's interesting that it went from that to, you know, not really hearing these stories as much and not being a part of the sort of common uh, narrative that we know of for the history of the internet. So I'm just curious about uh, Stacey and Marisa, why you think it, it made that shift from getting more attention than maybe you expected to not everyone knowing these stories anymore. Well, I think in the beginning, um, the writers, the journalists that were writing about the internet were struggling with a narrative that would reach the general public. So a lot of the people that were starting online services were starting the kind of services that you know my mother or my sister wouldn't connect with. And so when they came across people like myself and Marisa and Jamie, we just seemed more human and accessible and novel and they could write stories about us that the general public would understand, and I think we benefited from that in the beginning. Maybe for those who haven't got the advanced reader copy of the book, <laughs> we can talk a little bit about Word and Echo and, and sort of what role you guys played in the, in the early internet, just sort of what they were for people who are unfamiliar. <laughs> yeah, what's Echo? <laughs> I mean, I could explain it, but you probably should. Well, I'll just briefly discuss my own history and how I came to start ECHO. I was a graduate student at NYU in a program called the Inter Interactive Telecommunications Program. And this was 1986. And, <laughs> and I had a course um, to call an online service called The Well, which is still around. Uh, we call it a social network now, but we called them virtual communities then. And I got online and I called The Well and I just instantly loved it. I mean, you just have to remember the time. I could daily have access to people that seems normal to you now, but it was very unusual then. So my whole time through graduate school, I would call the well every day, have a great time, but it was very expensive. And all the people on the well, for the most part, lived in California, so if somebody was interesting to me, it was very hard to meet them. So I always had this idea in the back of my head that I would love to have something like Echo in New York. But it never occurred to me to do it myself. But in my last semester at NYU, uh, I was logged onto the well, and somebody said, oh, we heard that you're going to start the East Coast version of the well. And again, this had never occurred to me. <laughs> but the instant they said it, I went, oh my god. So I typed back, yeah, I am. That's exactly what I'm doing. And I just quick dropped a course that I was taking and signed up for a course in the business school, writing a business plan, wrote a business plan, went around to a bunch of banks and venture capitalists trying to get money. Everyone laughed at me and said, what a loser you are to think that every, anyone's going to want to communicate on the internet <laughs> using their computer. 
I couldn't get any money. And just I lucked out at the time that the company that I was working for, Mobile Oil, um, was moving to Virginia. So instead of moving to Virginia, I took a severance package, used that money, and started Echo and ran it out of my apartment. It bears saying, before we move on, that in the time when the internet was only 10 to 15% female, Echo had almost total parity between men and women. Very, very rare at the time. And because of Stacy's Herculean efforts to cultivate a female <laughs> user base, seriously, she created one of the, or like the first sort of like spaces where women could have a voice uh, and were part of the conversation online. So it's a really remarkable thing. It's true. Okay. I did like everything I could think of. Uh, women were free the entire first year. That was <laughs> an effective tool to get them online. But I had classes, and I just went out all the time networking with women's groups, just trying to drag them online one by one. And I think, as I said to you, I, the reason I was so successful at the time was that I was the only one trying. Mm -hmm. Why do you think there was fewer women online at the time, and, and, and why there was you know, it took so much work and effort to, to get women online. Well, just because at the time, for the most part, the only people online were people that had government contracts that connected them to the De Department of Defense network, um, universities that had contracts with the government for various reasons, so students in engineering and computer science were online. There just wasn't anything else. In fact, we were talking about this. Um, Shortly after I started ECHO, I started teaching at NYU, and I taught a graduate course about the internet, and I called it virtual culture. And it was just so heartbreaking because all these students would sign up because they'd heard about the internet, but they'd never been online. They were very excited to explore the internet, and so they'd get into my class, we'd go online, and their reaction was invariably, this is it, this, this, this is all there was. Because at the time, it was, again, it was just a bunch of computer and engineering people talking about engineering and computer science. And then Marisa, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Word and about your role online. Okay. Um, well, I had, a, oh, I had a really unusual experience. In the mid-70s, my father worked for a supercomputer company in Minneapolis where I grew up, and they had a really, sort of experimental um, computer network where you could socialize. And I was a teenage girl, and there were all boys online, so that really worked for me. And we could <laughs> ch chat. You know, you could chat. There would be one line of chat going across the computer. So at 17 or something, 15, 16, 17, in 1975 or 6, I had like the same experience that teens have now, kind of, but in a much, you know, the whole structure wasn't there. You couldn't send photos, for example, thank God. <laughs> um, so I just had this very unusual experience for someone of my generation of being like, oh my God, this is so much fun. I want to do this all the time for the rest of my life. Well, then that, you know, then I went to college and there wasn't anything like that. And um, years passed and then I read about Echo. Um, and I was like, oh my god, that's just like the thing I was doing as a teenager, but with interesting people, it sounds like, and here in New York, because I had moved to New York. So I got involved with Echo and was obsessed with it for years, <laughs> years, I did nothing else. And, and it's sort of, it's so funny to explain to people now, like people looked at you like you were a big loser for doing this. No one was, no one guessed that this was going to become the thing that everyone does all the time. Um, but it was really fun, you know, you know, for me, I'd always been involved in like alternative media stuff and zines type things, so 
I totally grasped how this is a way around the kind of media monopolies at the time. Ha ha, funny now to think of it that way. <laughs> but no businesses were online except, like you said, in engineering businesses. Anyway, so there came a year when suddenly, I think it was after the Netscape IPO. Netscape was a browser. I don't even know if it still existed. That was the first big IPO, which is company went public and people became jillionaires. And all of a sudden, I would go to a restaurant in East Village or something, and everyone on all sides was talking about the internet. It was so weird. And so these business people wanted to start an online magazine, and they had met this woman we mentioned, Jamie, who was another Echo person, who was a designer, and she knew me through Echo. And even though I had no mainstream media experience, I was hired. Basically, I ended up being the editor of this online magazine. So for five, it was like five and a half years. I always tell people it was like having a renewable annual MacArthur grant or something <laughs> because we had money and I had a staff of brilliant, brilliantly talented people and we basically got to just invent anything we could possibly do on the internet using multimedia. We could try it. Um, and I got to fulfill every creative fantasy I'd ever had in my entire life and watch, also watch the business. The business of the internet kind of grew uh, while we, you know, I was doing it, and the news was just full of the internet all the time, and then finally, you know, people started making huge amounts of money, and it was this—it was just the most bizarre experience to be kind of a person who was in the middle of the biggest thing that seemed to be happening at the time, at least in the United States. You know, there were wars in Yugoslavia and stuff like that. People were killing each other, but we didn't care because <laughs> we were just on the internet. <laughs> um, it I was fun, to, but it had oh, a dark ahead. side even then. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask, because it really struck me reading the book, the, it's easy to point to the, the differences, obviously. You know, the user experience was very different back then. You know, it wasn't like point and click surfing the internet. You had to know how to code and do all these things. But what struck me actually was a lot of the similarities. So the fact that people finally got online and, and one of the first things they wanted to do was talk to other people and connect and create these networks. And I think we think of social media as a relatively new phenomenon when really it's sort of the heart and soul of, of where the internet came from. So I just would love to know what you guys thought, what are some of the differences and some of the similarities between early internet and uh, the internet as we know it now? I mean, you guys had all the bad stuff. I mean, there was all the bad stuff on Echo. You had, you had a Nazi once, you had trolls. Well, yeah, like, like when I started Echo, I ch you know, I was very naive. I just thought, oh my God, it's going to be great. We're going to have so much fun. I'm going to create this wonderful thing. <laughs> and, and we did. It's true, but it was also this period in my life that forced me to become an adult. Because, I mean, you, w w the same thing that, that happens now happened then. You put a bunch of people together, and along with all the good things that happen when people interact, all the terrible things happened as well. You know, awful people came along, people harassed each other, people bullied each other. You know. And here, I was expected to do something about it. And I had no experience or background to deal with it. So I was just making it up as I went along. And I made all sorts of mistakes and hopefully got some things right. But I mean, I could talk about some of the things that we tried and we did. I think probably the best decision I made, two, two good decisions I made, was no anonymity. Um, people could play around and have pseudonyms online, but people could always look up and see 
what your real name was and who you really were. And I just felt that if people knew their name was going to be attached to everything that they said, they'd be more careful about what they said. And that was true for the most part, except for people like Nazis who were proud of what they <laughs> believed. And um, I had this rule, um, no personal attacks. So if somebody said something that you didn't like or you disagreed with, you had to attack the idea and not the person. And it was really a very fine line, but that fine line was just enough to keep conversations relatively civil. And, and then I just realized one more thing <laughs> was I always marketed it as mostly a New York service because I, for selfish reasons, I wanted to meet the people that I was interacting with. And so what I did was I organized all these face-to-face um, -face activities. Anything I could think of to get people offline and together, um, I did. And I didn't do it for the reason to um, dispel online disagreements, but I found that people who met someone at least once in person were least likely to just go overboard in an argument online. And if they did argue, they would be able to make up afterwards when they had a beer together. Exactly. <laughs> while you're saying that, it's making me remember that um, one of the things that's probably, you know, you, you wouldn't even be aware of it now, but nobody had, there had never been a, a form of media where people were able to interact with each other. You know, when we grew up, there were three television networks and maybe PBS or something, and they just beamed to you, or the radio beamed to you. Or there were magazines or newspapers, and they didn't come out that often, you know, maybe once a day, and that was it. Like, maybe you might talk to people at work about some articles or TV shows or something, but that was it. Um, and so, one of the things that was incredibly exciting for us was that we felt like we know what this is. We know what this is because we'd been on, we'd been in this pre-web, so, you know, community, and the big media companies had no idea what it was. They knew they had to get in on it somehow, and that there was potentially a lot of money to be made, but they had no clue of how to. So there were this us people like us. And then there were like Time Warner and Steven Spielberg and all these things like, we gotta get on the internet. But they just had no idea that it was actually a social medium, that people were the medium that you were really working with, that the technology was just a way for the people to yeah. get together kind of and talk and interact and stuff like that. There were few, you know, there were few, like I think I talked about, um, there was a very early um, online graphical community created by people at Lucasfilm. Did I talk about that? Habitat. Habitat. Oh, oh my, my God, God, yes. So it was like on, I forget what, it was on, I don't know, not AOL, but one of Quantum the Link. Quantum, Quantum Link. Quantum Link. <laughs> Some really, you know, or online community, you know, network that you've never heard of. And it was very primitive, pixelated images. But they, you know, and what they realized, is it doesn't matter how perfectly rendered a 3D figure is. What matters is if you give the humans behind the avatars the ability to behave like humans, that's what will make it realistic. Uh, if you are at all interested in this, you should look up this article called The Lessons of Lucasfilm's Habitat. It is fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I can vouch for that. People on it, like, they gave free people, they understood they needed to give people freedom to do stuff, and people created a church, they did all this, an anti-violence church, because people were having wars with each other, and it's just... I mean, now it probably would seem like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that before in, you know, whatever, those kind of real-life 
community games, but um, it had never existed before. Was this like an early Second Life? Yeah, basically. It was kind of, it was this weird space between a game and a virtual community. I'm so glad you mentioned this. I was just going so deep on Habitat recently. Yeah, well, my assistant's going to put an image of Habitat on the screen for me. Um, <laughs> it's my boyfriend. But, um, <laughs> yeah, Habitat was this, um, it was, it was a, it was a, actually, a, it was a game created by Lucasfilm for the Quantum Link online service, which is a pre-internet service. So people would dial into the game server, and the game server hosted essentially like a cartoon, a shared cartoon reality, and all of these avatars, these super pixelated 2D avatars with little like talk bubbles, could interact with each other. In like this. stick figures, almost. Yeah, so yeah, primitive. really, really, even primitive for the time, I think. And uh, yeah, but the people that created it realized really quickly that you know the 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 primary like truth of, of cyberspace is that it's a shared social medium and that it doesn't really matter how good it looks. There we go. Yeah. Thank you. Wow. Oh, that's um, awesome. This is from another talk I gave last week, weirdly, about Habitat. So it's crazy that you brought this up. But yeah, that, that people are the medium that we're talking about with cyberspace and it doesn't really matter. Oh my God, are you going to play the commercial? Yeah. There was a commercial for Habitat. Yes. Do we have sound? I don't think we have sound though. But you get a vision of it. But you reference Habitat when we oh, talked. Oh, sound. yes. Hi there. I'm Steve Arnold, talking to you live from a popular nightclub in Habitat, a fantasy world made possible by the miracle of telecommunications. <laughs> Habitat will connect people from all over the country into a single imaginary cartoon reality using a Commodore 64 computer, a modem, and a telephone. Habitat, which could be the world's first 10,000-player computer game, is currently in the final testing stages and will be available. You get it. I love this idea of an, like a shared imaginary cartoon reality, because I feel like that's, we're living in it now, really. Maybe not in that literal of a way, but that's like what the internet is. I like how excited they were about 10,000 users. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's important to remember, like, Echo was not on the internet. The internet itself was really barely available to people, and the web didn't even begin to exist until 1995. You know, the graphical user interface that was laid over the web to make it more accessible to people just started in 95 and barely started even then. Well, actually, we were on the internet um, before the before the web interface. We were online um, on the internet. I can't. I think it might have been like 91. But I remember when um, we saw the first graphic interface, um, it was, what was it called? Mosaic? Mosaic, yes, yes. Fiber optic showed it to me, and I just go up. This is going to take over. This is the new world. You knew instantly when you saw the World Wide Web that it was going to be the thing? There, it was, again, you didn't have to be a visionary. When you were, like, <laughs> logging in every day and it was all text-based and dial-up and you're watching it go line by line, and all of a sudden you see a graphic interface laid on top of that and you can click instead of type in commands, you didn't need to be a genius to see it. That's it. <laughs> well, how come you never put Echo on the web, then? It, it was... It cost more money than I can than I could afford at the time to pay someone to build a graphic interface for Echo. I actually felt differently though because um, I don't know. Have any of you ever been in like a t ASCII text-only environment online? There's okay. Me, there's, yeah. See, yeah, I preferred it. They're hip. I mean, for years I was like, I feel like 
someone has put like a prophylactic device between me and my friends or something because the, the graphical user interface, I felt like it was a big separation and it felt sort of numb. Whereas to me, the incredible electricity of people's personalities in the ASCII-only environment of Echo was much more interesting. And there was this John Perry Barlow who just died recently, uh, was a big well, I don't know, what do you, what'd you call him? He was like a sort of a hippie, Grateful Dead lyricist, well, you know, these well people are very West Coast. <laughs> and um, he, had, he said, well, the, the internet has no prana, which I guess is like the breath or whatever. And I felt like I could feel that on Echo, but I yeah, couldn't I feel it on the web. Yeah, I always disagreed with him about that. <laughs> Echo had prana? Yeah. I felt like it did. Yeah. You, know, you, you just feel the electricity of people's personalities. Do you feel like because you're a writer you feel that way? Because you, you love text? I'm just excitable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think people who've never, who, do not, who didn't come from that and didn't experience it at the time see it that way. I think it just makes it impossible for them. They're not even going to deal with it. There is something really, I mean, Echo still exists and you can totally, you can set an up, up an account. <laughs> Stacey will help you. Um, and using it now, it feels, it's, as someone who grew up on the sort of physics of the World Wide Web, it's a crazy experience to use Echo because it feels really pure. I mean, I think you're right about the prana in a weird way. Like, it feels really raw, like it's the core of social media or the core of online community. And it's just, it's just people and messages in direct communication. And the only thing flowery about it is language. So I, th I mean, I think for writers, it's just, it's extra hypnotic in the same way that a lot of these early text spaces were, like multi-user domains and, um, and moos were really hypnotic for writers. But yeah, it does feel like the seed in this really interesting way. And another thing I realized about it too is that um, because it was basically a blank screen with only text, you know how everyone projects everything all the time? So you could just project, your imagination had full Rain. Whereas now when you go on the web, it's like, well, it's full of ads. You're kind of in this very normal, everyday context. You can't get away from it, really. Mm -hmm. But it just seemed more like, wow, this could be anywhere. It's nowhere. I'm a new person. <laughs> it, was, it was cool that way. There's less space for the imagination maybe now that we're bombarded with images. Well, there's just so, every, everywhere you go on the internet, there's everything to remind you of the world that you're in right now. There's a ton of ads, you know, there's sort of fatty conversation with people using fatty terms that remind you of like, oh, I'm here right now in Williamsburg at this very moment. You know, it's harder to imagine yourself elsewhere. And everything is super targeted to you, right? I mean, they're like, everything is data mining you so hard that it, it knows exactly what, it, what you want or what it thinks you want or what your anxieties are and it's telling you, it's selling you your life back to yourself. So you really can't escape. There's not that sense of, okay, I'm entering into this new kind of like hypnagogic textual space. No, when you're starting to get ads for like diapers and stuff at our age, you know, it's, <laughs> it's an unwelcome reminder. Claire, what sort of analogs did you start to find as you were researching this book with the web that you grew up with and the web that we have now and, and the sort of historical research that you were doing? I mean, there's always, there's, yeah, I think people are, have always been the same. And so it's just like the different kinds of containers into which community pours itself or human creativity and writing pours itself kind of dictate what's possible. But the same tendencies are always at play. I mean, reading about Echo, you see a lot of the same kinds of, you know, dynamics, conversations, situations that seem to have unfolded then as, as now. I think there are a lot of really prescient things about Echo's design. Um, that, that remind me of things now, like the fact that it allowed for private space, mm -hmm. that you could have 
dialogue, both in the sort of public agora of these conversations, but you could also have these walled off areas of discourse, which I think is really important for anyone to feel like a whole person online. You have to be able to have spaces where you can communicate with other people without fear of that information being public. So that's, I think that's why Slack is so popular now and um, you know, group texts and DMs. Like there's this whole private dark matter of the internet that is this behind the scenes kind of activity, um, which also Facebook groups too, which things that I see now. Um, but yeah, I don't know, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it was just for me reading about it, it was really hard to disconnect. Like, you know, reading about Echo uh, just is immediately bringing to me flashes of, of Reddit and how that's mm. evolved into, you know, all these subreddits and these little tiny communities in some senses and, and huge communities in other senses and people being able to find one another and connect on such a specific level that that's, that's really what they're online for. You know, this, Reddit is, is such a bigger phenomenon and a bigger driver of, of online culture than, you yeah, know, yeah, that's true. <laughs> some random website or There's a business. something really fascinating to me about this period of internet history where things, just by virtue of the fact that people had to dial in to each other's servers, which, had, which came with the cost of long-distance phone calls, that there were these kind of isolated geographic pockets of communities. Like, it was more expensive to dial the well than it was to dial Echo. And you'd be dealing with like all these West Coast people who are into the Grateful Dead or whatever, and maybe that's not your thing. Uh, like these kind of cultural divisions that you don't really see so much online anymore. Like it's much more homogenized. And I think, you know, these more micro communities that are more rooted in place and, you know, consist of groups of people that stand a chance of meeting each other in real life and actually hanging out and having relationships and bonds that are not strictly virtual, as, as Stacey has, has once written. Um, it's pretty fascinating to me as a kind of experience that we don't really have so much anymore. I mean, we can create those things using things like Facebook groups, but um, it's not so much built into the platforms. Now we're dealing with each other, you know, like there's this kind of equivalence that's, I think, really disorienting. Like the fact that y anything you do or say can, can have the same equivalence as something that's, you know, objectively much more important or much less important. It all just ends up being part of this, uh, this one undifferentiated feed of information. Right. Yeah. Like when the president tweets nuclear threats, it's like... Ex exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to evoke his name <laughs> in this space, but we can if you want. Um, Stacey, I was curious because you mentioned that a big thing for Echo was people weren't able to be completely anonymous. Do you think that that... Um, ability now is is part of the problem with the web, or is it is it just inevitable that people are going to find a way to to hide who they are and, and pretend to be other people? And well, I think if there was less anonymity, it would help, but I don't think it would solve entirely the problem. Just because there are people that are terrible and they're going to be terrible, and they don't care if you know who they are. You know, I, but I was listening to one thing that you were saying, and I think a lot of what's happening online, like, for me, I, I loved the cultural boundaries. Like, I make a lot of fun of the well, like how Californian it was, but that was what I loved about it. I loved going there and feeling like I was going someplace that was different and then had a different culture that wasn't my everyday culture in New York. And that's why I wanted to recreate that on Echo to, to make it very New York. And I feel like there's a... There, there's a flattening out of cultural boundaries everywhere mm -hmm. because of the internet. And I actually recently wrote about this, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but this distribution of information has created a distribution of power that I believe is contributing to other countries rising up in strength and voice, and the United States 
declining. Uh, I, 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 we're doing a lot of other things that are contributing to that. <laughs> but, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Like if America isn't so prominent anymore and other countries are, but I think the internet has a lot to do with that. Um, sorry, that totally knew <laughs> her mind. Oh, you know what, we, we had talked, I mean, obviously it's Women's History Month and mm -hmm. women in STEM have finally been a topic of conversation for the last couple of years and the fact that there are still so few women in STEM. Uh, we were discussing the, the infamous memo that came out from Google mm -hmm. sometime last year, story broken by motherboard. Uh, was it? <laughs> yes, it was. Hell yeah. And, you know, this idea that, that women don't have a place in STEM or that, that they're sort of a secondary class or, or a, an addendum to the history of technology. <laughs> Why is it still uh, so prevalent and, and how do we continue to move past that? I mean, it's important to know, and I think, you know, people are starting to understand this a little bit more clearly, that 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 is a myth, like that the sense of entitlement maybe that that men in tech have about tech and, and STEM generally being their their space is really just the result of like a couple generations of bad marketing, uh, right? I mean, just like video games and computers being so aggressively marketed to young boys throughout the 80s and 90s probably had a lot to do with it. Um, but it's it's factually inaccurate. I mean, women are at the beginning of of all of this history, like women, it's, it, women essentially invented computer programming, and you know formalized some of the really important concepts of hypertext before the web, and created some of the earliest online communities, published some of the earliest online magazines. So, yeah, that, I mean, it's a fallacy that we have to sort of. I think we have to, you know, try to just subvert with with factual history. <laughs> I don't know how much that helps with redressing the problems that we have now, but I think making sure that the next generation of people engaging with this material understand the historical context from which it all comes and are able to sort of imagine themselves in the past of something in order to imagine themselves in the future of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have a long way to go, mm -hmm. obviously. Yeah, and you mentioned in the book, and I've read about this before, about you know, the early days of, of programming, it was, you know, it was considered women's work. Like the, it was like... Yeah, totally. Busy, it was like secretarial work. It was secretarial basically. work. I mean, in the in the very early days of computing, there wasn't really a distinction between hardware and software. I mean, software programming was just the manipulation of hardware. It was just plugging and unplugging things or switching things. It was it was putting things onto punch cards and entering them into the machine in the same sense that a telephone operator would punch on the board or a secretary would file documents. It was considered to be like that level of important. And it really wasn't until the earliest female programmers began to sort of formalize working methods to make that more efficient and also to evolve it beyond very menial data entry and towards more sophisticated, more language-oriented, more you know, abstract and conceptual levels of programming that it became something that was seen as you know, being important, being a branch of engineering. I mean, there was a very like, explicit decision that was made to stop calling it coding and start calling it software engineering, and that really coincides with the beginning of the decline of women in engineering, mm -hmm. um, because you know that signaled a very specific kind of demographic. Marisa and Stacy, I'm curious about you guys. You know, because your stories are part of this, you know, factual evidence that we're saying that women very much are a part of the history of the internet. How do you feel about the the cultural conversations going on about women in STEM and, and representation and and what our role is in in these fields? 
I feel like I'm going to be Debbie Downer here, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm 61 years old, and I grew up in the 60s and 70s when it was a really terrible, terrible time for blacks and for women. There were civil rights workers were being murdered, and George Wallace was blocking children from entering the school doors, and oh, the, the way they were treating women, it was hard. Yeah, and I, I remember I watched the first episode of Mad Men and I had a panic attack because it was just so captured, just yeah. how women were belittled and dismissed. And at the time, I was a teenager and I went to protests and I was very hopeful. And I remember thinking, all these people, I just have to wait for them to die, you know? <laughs> They're, they're going to grow old, go away, and all the people my age and younger will eventually be the people that are the adults and will be in power, and there will be no more racism and sexism. And so you can see how true that is. And so... Wait, so when I tell myself that all the time... <laughs> I tell myself that all the time, too. That's my going... That's my self-soothing mechanism. Uh -oh. they're, they're all going to die. Obviously, it is better, but... I only bring that up to say, yes, it's, we still have a long way to go, and it's still just a horribly, horribly slow process. Mm -hmm. But that said, I mean, this year has been a very good year for, for women and for blacks, and mm -hmm. the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, people are still plugging away, and, and it is having an effect. Mm -hmm. So I'm still hopeful. <laughs> It's interesting that you talk about this because I feel like reading a lot of computer-oriented texts from, you know, over the course of writing this book, I feel like one of the big things that comes up a lot in writing about the internet from the 1990s specifically is this idea that the internet is going to erase divisions between people, that it's going to allow us to connect. I mean, this is another John Perry Barlow thing. It's going to allow people us to, in California said that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that it's going to allow us to connect mind to mind. We have this new civilization of the mind in cyberspace, which is such a subductive idea. And I've been grappling with it because it clearly didn't quite come to pass, but I can't blame people for feeling that way, especially maybe when the internet was something that was much more separate from everyday life, you know? Like it's something that you could kind of project a lot on this new kingdom, on this empty space. And now that we're living in a world where it's just so holistically integrated into everything we do, it's much more difficult to sort of say, well, this new, in this new place, we're gonna be different. Yeah, to me, all this stuff has so much to do with money. Yeah. too because in those days of the you know the earlier years of the well and echo nobody's making money off this stuff so um there was no money being thrown into things that might create equality or something like mm -hmm. that and you know journalists and so they pay attention to who's making tons of money and you know who's making tons of money is often the people who are backed by investment bankers and stuff like that they tend to be male um it, just tends to be, you know, I mean, if you look at the people who are paid the most attention now are Google, Facebook, I don't know, what else? Amazon. Twitter, you know, they're all founded Amazon, by yeah. men. Um, and so they're kind of like, it's a sort of a shorthand for journalists to understand what's going on by pointing to these single people because they can't possibly understand the structure underneath it <laughs> that's making it work, really. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's part of it. But I feel like word managed to exist and thrive during this weird period of time where there was a lot of money floating around, but it was sort of going towards, at least in the context of like online publishing, kind of interesting stuff. 
Um, it was a really fortunate, weird accident, I think, <laughs> that, because um, like I said, no one knew how people on the internet were gonna make money, so <laughs> the word had two owners. The first was like a company that integrated legacy computer hardware with newer computer hardware. <laughs> And they just thought like, oh, content, like I guess we could make money at it because it won't cost anything to distribute. And so they funded <laughs> Word. And basically it was really just used because the business model of so many businesses then were really just to have an IPO and cash out, that it's, it was like great sexy PR for them to have something actually kind of cool going on. And then they did have their IPO and then they shut us down. <laughs> and then another company that wanted to have an IPO bought us. <laughs> And, and so, what did that company make? They, well, they didn't only make fish oil, but they did make, they were big in omega-3s or whatever those, you know, some kind of fish that I produced mean, the right kind of oil. This kind of stuff oil. feels very familiar today, too. I mean, there's the same kind of ludicrous behavior in, like, in startup culture, too. Like, weird but, companies, weird bedfellows like this, no? But, but it was weird, but it was also smart, because it really was a pyramid scheme. And it didn't really matter what kind of business you were in. If you got in on the IPO early and people bought it, you would make shitloads of money. So... You know, and it worked for us. And I kind of, I was old enough at the time, thank God, and I had studied economic history, so I understood what was happening. And so I was able to take advantage of it, as if it were a five-year MacArthur grant. Um, what were the parties like? <laughs> so much fun. There was so much money. I mean, I feel like now the money that's floating around is really just going to the top. But at the time, like, companies really needed people that knew how to do HTML and work with every new browser iteration. So they had to pay people more. And then there was just tons of money around for parties, like all the time. <laughs> it was fun. It's definitely a silver lining. Um, I wanted to talk to you guys, so, so this is gonna be me being a little indulgent for a minute, but I, one of the topics I cover at Motherboard is the digital divide, which is this fact that millions of Americans don't have access to high-speed internet or any internet at all in a lot of cases, and there's a lot of reasons for that, from financial to geographical, they just can't get access. I'm curious about your guys' opinion on that and how, you know, we've come so far, and you look at this development of this part of our world and this part of our life that we kind of take for granted and how that compares with people that, that still maybe haven't fully experienced or, or in some cases experienced it at all. You know, until I talked to you, like, I knew that the divide existed, but I didn't know to the extent that it existed until you explained some of the places that you've gone to. And I think it's devastating. I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, but, like, I live for just searching for information. I must do that all day long, looking up things, something's curious to me, and I explore it for few hours, I go down a million rabbit holes a day. It's my favorite thing. And to not have that, and to especially think that children are growing up without that, I think it's an extremely important issue, and I'm glad that you're bringing attention to it, and how can I help? <laughs> the weird thing is it's not even expensive to set up internet in a place, really. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but I mean, it just goes along with all the other inequalities that you know people don't have drinkable water, they don't have enough food, they have shitty schools, health insurance. Mm. But you were saying how it's geography too that I had never even it never occurred to me. Yeah, I mean, tell us more about this. <laughs> it's just going to be about me now. Um, one of the the big barriers is if it's a remote or rural community that is not densely populated, it's just not there's not going to be a very big return on investment for ex-telecom company to run fiber optic cable to every home in that town. Mm. So they just don't. 
And so there's just no infrastructure to, to get it there. And their options are, you know, maybe satellite or maybe some fixed wireless. But that also represents a change in philosophy of government because when the entire country was being electrified, they made sure that every little town had electricity. Mm -hmm. And I think when they, I don't know for sure about telephones, but I think they kind of made sure that everyone had telephone lines. Uh, it's just been that the country has gone so far to the right um, that it's like, well, if we can't make money, we're not going to do it. Yeah. We don't have an, you know, we don't have a concept of a society where everyone can communicate. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was the wealthy that built libraries in the beginning. It wasn't the government. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wealthy are not going to give the internet to the poor now, though. That's for sure. Claire, I was curious about some of the stories that maybe you weren't able to include or, or things that just surprised you while you were researching this. Stories I wasn't able to include. Yeah. Well, I cut a lot of stuff from the book. And I was telling someone earlier, this, I, you know, the minute I sent the manuscript off, I was, there were like 50 other interesting stories that I thought of that I didn't include. I mean, <laughs> the thing that is the most striking about this material is it's not like you really have to dig that deeply to find people women who contributed in meaningful cultural or technological ways to the development of the internet and the World Wide Web. There are so many. That's the thing that's the most shocking, I think, about it, is that there are all these stories that are just haven't been included out of sheer laziness, if not like actual, you know, willful dismissal. So um, there's so much stuff. There's, I, cut a ch I cut an entire chapter about cyber performance, like people who did theater in early chat rooms. Another, it was like this whole movement of, of, of cyber theater led entirely by women and it's kind of lost to the sands of time. Um, Adrian yes. I knew her from Paper Tiger. No way, of course, yeah, of course. Yeah, she's great. Um, uh, I cut a whole chapter about multi-user domains, which is another form of, of early textual social space, um, kind of like a cross between a text adventure game and a chat room and a programming environment another fascinating corner of the internet. Um, I wanted to write a chapter about the women of Xerox Park. I wasn't able to do it. I wanted to write about Susan Kerr. I wanted to write about user interface design. I wanted to write about object-oriented programming, which was co-invented by Adele Goldberg. I wanted to write about so many things that I didn't have space for. So, I mean, I think one of the most important things for me about this book is I really, really don't want people to point to it and say, like, okay, we're done, you know? <laughs> we did it. We, we, we put the women in now, like, let's move on. There's really, I want it to be like a beginning or just a, a leading edge of a, of a larger conversation about sort of recentering these stories because it's really so important. And also just straight up so interesting. Like I'm tired of hearing the one story about how it's Steve Jobs like hired the guy from Pepsi, you know? I don't need that. It's a great story, but I've read it 50 times and seen it in three movies. It's time to just get a few more in the mix just for the sh for sheer variety. Yeah. I think all that inter early internet history, it's so refreshing to read now because everything's seems so set kind of and it's saturated with advertising but I mean I don't know years ago I even read the, this book about um, Steve Case and AOL and even that was like it was amazing you know I never I was like oh AOL was an AOL snob you know it's both losers <laughs> was that like too mainstream for you yeah, AOL yeah we could always tell when someone from AOL would come onto Echo because they'd be like want to chat and we'd be like no <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, it was really, because he really, you know, no one believed in AOL even that he had to try very hard to get it going. That's interesting. Yeah. Was there a sense that things were going to get to the point where they are now? I mean, obviously you could see, you know, and obviously your first reaction to, to seeing the graphic interface sort of opened a, a window to you, but did you guys sort of foresee how far this was going to go and, and what a big role it was going to play in, in everybody's life? Well, they invented the internet. <laughs> yes, us too. <laughs> um, I honestly, I didn't even think about it. I was just so immersed in what I was doing um, that I didn't think about the future. I mean, I guess I knew, again, I was old enough to kind of not be too naive, and I figured, oh, if it becomes a big medium, of course all the corporations are going to run it like everything else, and they'll be full of ads and blah, blah, blah. But I don't think I ever... It's not like I wouldn't have predicted it. I just didn't even think about it, that it would become everything all the time, yeah. which I love. <laughs> I did, but what I didn't predict was that it would move to telephones. Mm. Huh. That's a doozy. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a, quite the premonition if you came up with that. Um, I certainly would never have predicted living in a world where people are looking at their phones all the time as they're in the world. That just seems very dystopian to me. Carrying computers in our pockets at all times. Do you think that there's a, a particular reason why these stories and, and also just looking at the, the past history of the internet in general is hitting well with, with audiences? I, my, my theory is just like people of, of our age and older sort of went through this transition of the internet emerging and it's fun to look back on that and, and, and go through it and learn more about you it. You know, yes, I think so, but also the internet develops has developed qu very quickly, relatively speaking, if you look at it in relation to other technologies and, and other sort of social movements. I guess it's a little bit of both. I mean, we're it, even like micro things, like I remember when Twitter changed the thing from starring a tweet to hearting a tweet, right? But like you forgot that, right? And that was not that long ago, but that was something that people were really angry about. Or whenever they change the algorithm on one of the various platforms, it's something people get so righteous about and angry, and then it's forgotten instantly because we are constantly dealing with these these waves of, of like re-scripting re of what it is that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet at the same time, it's so intimate and so daily and so habitual. It's this really weird combination of we're living in this sort of eternal present. And we actually, I don't know. I mean, I remember what the internet used to be like or what the web used to be like, but it's sort of this abstraction and it's very difficult to really hold it in your mind, like how much it's actually changed and how much the sort of cultural forces at play have changed. So. I think it's important to just make sure we get it down on paper and understand it so that we have something. And also just, I mean, researching the early web is really hard because websites like Word, if, I mean, fortunately Word was preserved in the permanent collection of SFMOMA because the design was so incredible. But, and there's a few, there's scraps and there's bits on the Wayback Machine, but it's hard to actually get an experience of what it was like, even though it was such an important contribution to the early web. And that's not that long ago, you know? So this, the question of preservation is really huge and, and making sure that we understand that, we, that this stuff is, can very easily slip out of our grasp if we don't actively try to preserve it and archive it. And I mean, thank God for the Internet Archive. Those people are heroic, what they do. Yeah, shout out. Did it give you a new sense of, because you know, I, I think we have this uh, idea that the internet is permanent, and you know, once something's online, it's online forever. But as soon as you start digging back just a few years, you, you realize how ephemeral it can be. So, yeah, well, a lot of it is is tied to like proprietary 
platforms. You know, I think about myself as a writer coming of age and, and writing for web publications and writing on, on platforms like LiveJournal or Tumblr or whatever. I mean, none of that is permanent. It's completely beholden to the corporations or the, whoever owns those spaces. Word.com doesn't exist anymore because that URL was too valuable. Now it's a dictionary, you know? These things are constantly in flux because the people who make money off of them make those decisions ultimately. And so, I mean, think some of the earliest things I wrote as a journalist are gone forever because they're, you know, were written for websites that don't exist anymore. Maybe that's a good thing. I mean, it allows me to evolve and not be too tied to my, my previous work. But at the same time, it's a little bit scary because that stuff does matter. Yeah. But at the same time, and this is just sort of devil's advocate philosophical Please. viewpoint, but the whole idea of needing to record everything is kind of a function of the digital age anyway because you couldn't. Like, in early TV history, TV was live. You know, almost none of that stuff. You know, if they happened to record something... Uh, you know, it's hard to watch, but a lot of it was just lost. I think there's no history of early telephone conversations. They weren't recorded. But wouldn't it be amazing um, to have that? It would be amazing to see what early telephone conversations were like. Well, Stacey, uh, you donated a, a lot of the Echo Archives to the New York well, Historical e Society. Echo has been donated to the New York Historical Society. And what's exciting um, for me about that, it's not an ego thing, it's strictly like an historian's thing. Like, for instance, I often write about the 19th century, and for the most part, I have to guess what people thought at the time because the only people writing were wealthy people. So I don't know, except if I come across diaries and letters, which are pretty rare, of like everyday people, it's very, very hard to know just what they were thinking. But there are conversations on Echo going back to 1989 that are, I, may not be so interesting to people now, and I swear in the future they're gonna be very excited. <laughs> like, well, for instance, like um, when Anita Hill um, testified um, before the Senate that Clarence Thomas was harassing her, we have all our reactions of thousands of people to that, you know, live, what was going on. All of that is preserved. The first time the World Trade Center was bombed, we were reacting online. and and. Echo is not a chat system, so everything that people said is still there. And so you can see like how innocent we were. Like things like our TVs went out because we didn't have cable at the time, so the antenna on the World Trade Center was gone, and so a lot of people lost their TV. And we were going so well, it wasn't gone, but it was knocked out, and so people didn't know it was a bomb. And so, so what happened when? It, and the, what else was I'm trying to think of what other the Bronco chase. You have a whole there's a whole section in Stacy. Stacy wrote this incredible book if you're interested in this stuff called Cyberville that's all about Echo and there's a whole you she she duplicates an entire thread of people like essentially live tweeting yeah. the OJ Bronco chase on Echo at the time and it's so fascinating because it really reads like someone live tweeting this like major cultural event before the invention of Twitter. So so Essentially, you said it. So, from an, any major cultural event and everyday, you know, minutia that is interesting if you're looking back is preserved. So you really know what people thought at the time, like unedited, and and not performing so much as the a, a lot of what's happening now. Does anyone in the audience have any questions? Because we do have a mic. If anyone wants to do a, a Q and A, if you want to. People no are being shy. Okay, that's fine. I have more questions. <laughs> I never have questions when I'm in the audience, or rarely. Not until way later. Well, at least it's not. I hate when someone's like, this is more of a statement. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very masculine thing to do. Sorry to be essentialist. <laughs> um, this is going to sound like a really basic question, but I think it'll elicit some interesting responses. What is 
the best thing about the internet and what is the worst thing about the internet? Now? Now. Um, Wikipedia is the best thing about the internet and YouTube. I'm with you, Stacey. I think like researching online is, is the greatest joy. And I think, I mean, I wrote a lot about hypertext and the development of hypertext in this book. And just the kind of like utopian ideal of hypertext is that the connections between ideas are as important as the ideas themselves. And that the threads that you create when you go from one idea to the next and forge those connections are a really valuable piece of meta information that tells you a lot about an individual's understanding of the world. And that if we share those sort of threads with one another that we can all come to understand each other better and notice how intensely interconnected everything is. And I feel like I don't ever experience that online unless I'm going on a Wikipedia deep dive. And that's where it happens to me. And it's always so magical to just like start, you know, I'm re reading about like Irish history in the 1970s. And then 45 minutes later, I'm reading about space travel. And I don't know how I got there. And that's so <laughs> pure to me. So that's the best thing. Uh, the worst thing is, is comments. Is what? Comments. Oh. Just the comments. All just of the, the comments. Just, yeah, YouTube comments mostly, I think, are the worst. Um, just the, the sense of entitlement people have about, you know, telling you what they think. Uh, is wrong with the thing that you spent a really long time working on. Mm -hmm. Can we, can you both start with the worst thing and then end with the best thing just so we end on like kind of a nicer note? Well, for, for me though, the worst and best thing is the same exact thing. <laughs> um, the best thing about the internet is how democratic it is, but that's also the worst thing because it empowers bad people as much as it empowers good people. True. Good answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's not something I ever really think about, but I guess to me the worst thing is the possibility of bad actors to get all your information and use it against you. I mean, they could before with credit cards, but it's easier now. Um, and the best thing is, well, just something, uh, just everything, the fact that it's there. My, my mother grew up in a small town in what is now Serbia. and. She's like, you have no idea how fucking boring it was. Like, <laughs> there was just nothing to do, ever. I'm like, you never have to be bored now. Never. You can go from many YouTube videos of animals of different species making friends. That is the best thing about the internet. To, you know, scholarly journals to just like anything you want, practically, uh, is there. And that's just amazing to have that access. Have you ever been on the Wikipedia page of unusual deaths? I've been on the Deaths at Disneyland Wikipedia page, okay, yeah. which I feel like Another is kind of gem. in the same yeah, category. Yeah. What's just, the deal with unusual deaths? It's just a whole list of every documentation of strange, unusual deaths. Oh, my so God. Like, so there was a girl that was killed by coyotes, and she's the only human to have ever been killed by coyotes, and they still don't understand what the heck happened. Wait, really? No one else but one person has been killed just by coyotes? one woman, yeah. Go to the Wikipedia page to find out more. Once again, the book is Broadband, The Untold Story of the Women Who Made the Internet. I've read the book. It's really great. I'd recommend it to anyone who's interested in broadband, digital divide, internet history, culture. Uh, really fast, fun read. Um, thanks again to Kaylee, Claire for writing the book, and Marisa and Stacy for joining us. Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with a new episode real soon.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.